if you want to gather back to your chairs, we'll get started in just a moment. Well, good evening. Uh, Tonight we're going to continue in our study in the Minor Prophets, and we're going to look at the book of Nahum this evening. One of the things that's really interesting about the book of Nahum is, and in particular connected to our study, is if you look at what happens before Nahum in your Bible, you'll see that it's the book of Micah. But actually, Nahum is a book that is written primarily to the city of Nineveh. And that, of course, is interesting because we just finished the book of Jonah, which was also written to Nineveh. And we're going to see some interesting parallels between uh, those two books, those two messages, um, and how they relate to this city. But we also see in the book of Nahum that there's a message for Nineveh, and there's also a message for Judah here as well. And we're going to look at that a little closer this evening. Before we start, let's just pray, uh, and then we'll look at the book of Nahum, chapter 1, this evening. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you just for another opportunity to be here this evening. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this book. And um, Lord, although it's a short book, we thank you for the power uh, that is displayed of your character and who you are within this book. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we study it to... Uh, Take its truths and apply it into your own hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start tonight with a little bit of an introduction into the book of Nahum. Uh, If you look at Nahum chapter 1 and verse 1, we learn a little bit about Nahum's background. And of course, there isn't very much in Scripture that tells us about uh, this man Nahum outside of the book of Nahum itself. Uh, This first verse kind of helps us set the tone. So it says here, The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. And you see here three things about Nahum, and this is what we can piece together from this verse. And really this is all there is about this man uh, in Scripture other than the rest of his message. Uh, But first of all, the thing that we see here is that Nahum had a vision. It tells us here that he had a vision. And of course, we know that this vision was from God, and it was to do primarily with the future of the Assyrians and the city of Nineveh. We also know from the very first four words here, it says the burden of Nineveh, that this message was primarily directed to the city of Nineveh. But again, as I mentioned before, we're going to see how a message to Nineveh also had implications for the nation of Judah as well. The third thing that we know about Nahum is what his name means. His name in the Hebrew means comfort uh, and interesting, if you're interested in this sort of thing. Uh, Nahum is actually a short version of Nehemiah. Uh, the bit that's missing between those two names is the Yah, which refers to God. Nehemiah means God comforts. Nahum just means comfort. Uh, And it's kind of ironic, actually, because Nahum's message really is not a message of comfort 
for its primary intended recipient. It's not a message of comfort for Nineveh, but it is a message of comfort for God's people and Judah. But what was this burden that it speaks of in verse 1? What is the burden that is upon the city of Nineveh? It tells us in verse 2 what that is. It says, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. So here Nahum tells us what the burden is that's resting on the city of Nineveh. He tells us that this burden is that God is jealous. God is jealous for his own people. And God is seeking revenge on behalf of what Nineveh has done against his people. It tells us here that God is furious and God is angry with this city of Nineveh. And that burden, the burden of God's anger is upon these people. This is the burden that's on them. Now, that leads us to the question, why is God angry with them? What is it that they have done? Especially since last week when we looked at what happened in Jonah's day, that God showed them mercy. God gave them a chance to repent. There's a number of factors at play here. One, of course, is the context. Uh, We are a little bit later. Uh, But they all ultimately come down to one thing, and that is their sin. The reason God is angry with Nineveh and declares judgment against them is the fact that they are continuing in their sin uh, and have turned away from the repentance that took place in the day of Jonah. Now, to help us with this, I've put together a little timeline this evening to help us understand what happened last week in the book of Jonah versus where Nahum's prophecy comes in. And what you'll see is some of the events that happen in between help explain exactly why God is angry with the city of Nineveh. Of course, when I say God is angry with the city of Nineveh, that is essentially the capital of the Assyrian people. And in those days... If you took the capital, then you took the whole country, and that's primarily the way it worked. So the burden here was on the leadership in Nineveh and what they were doing against God's people. So we see here in our timeline, sometime between 780 and 750, so what Holden mentioned last week was whenever Jonah went to the city of Nineveh and they repented. And Jesus affirms this in Matthew chapter 12, In verse 41, he says, The man of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. So Jesus refers to those that repented in Nineveh's day as being truly repentant. He says, actually, they will rise up um, and condemn the generation of Jesus' day who rejected him because they repented whenever Jonah went to them. So we see that noted on there. That happened during the ministry of Jonah. And then we start to see some of the things that happened after Jonah. And we'll see that the repentance lasted for a generation, and then these people started to go back to their old sinful ways and sinful habits a number of generations later. The next kind of major event that we can see in the scriptures pertaining to Assyria after uh, the repentance uh, of Jonah's day is 
7:22, and we see that Assyria comes and destroys the ten tribes of Israel. And in Second Kings, verse 17, it gives us a little bit of insight into this. <clears throat> it says, Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria, the capital city of Israel, and besieged it for three years. And in the ninth year of Hosea, or Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria. So in Second Kings 17, we see that Assyria comes, they destroy Israel. And of course, this was foretold in some of the earlier minor prophets that we have looked at uh, up to this point. But then we see what Assyria does there and after. And this is not marked on our little timeline, but you, um, it is mentioned in Second Kings 17. Uh, but Assyria essentially took that area of land that, that belonged to the ten tribes of Israel, uh, that belonged to Samaria, and they filled it with foreign people, people from different parts of the earth. This is what it says here. It says, And the king of Assyria brought forth men from Babylon, and Cuthath, and from Ava, and Hamrath, and from Zephyrium, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. Now, this is a really important historical fact for us as New Testament readers, because, of course, the Samaritans was the race of people that came out of this situation. And this was absolutely where it began when the king of Assyria brought in people from all over and they started to bring their own idolatry, their own gods, their own kind of worship, their own standards, everything that was against God's law and against the way that God wanted Israel to act. Assyria brought in all these people that started to act in a way that was different to God. And then we see that they began to intermingle with those in the area and in Judah. And there we end up with that mixed race between uh, the Jew and the Gentile that the Jews of Jesus' day were so opposed to. Then we see in 701 that Assyria actually came right up to the gates of Jerusalem and they plotted against Judah themselves. So first of all, Assyria had taken out Israel. They had completely wiped them out according to prophecy. Um, and they had done that just as um, God had foretold would happen to them. But then we see that they plot against Judah as well. And at this time, Assyria is the world superpower. Uh, they have more allies, way more strength than any other nation on earth. And Judah was all alone. They were just this little tiny island, this one tribe, uh, city, uh, state left behind after Israel was wiped out. But they were, Judah had something that Assyria and the rest of the world didn't have, and of course that is that they had God on their side, and we see that that makes all the difference. Second uh, Chronicles 32 tells us a little bit about what happens during this time. This is really telling and really helps us understand the message of Nahum. See, it says in Second Chronicles 32, verse 1, it says, After these things and the establishment thereof, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. Um, in that day, 
Hezekiah was the king of Judah. He was on the throne and he was concerned about the king of Assyria just showing up at his door and basically being like, all right, let's go. So he um, had previously removed all the idols. He had instructed the people that they were to only worship the one true Jehovah God. And Hezekiah actually sought uh, some help in this situation. First of all, he had Isaiah the prophet with him. He sought his counsel and sought his help. And together, both of them prayed unto the Lord for help. But here's what Sennacherib said to the people of Judah, the people in Jerusalem. This is what he said, verse uh, 15 of Second Chronicles 32. He said, Now, therefore, let not Hezekiah deceive you, nor persuade you on this matter, neither yet believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people out of mine hand and out of the hands of my fathers. And then he says this, and this is a very critical statement in the whole thing. He says, how much less shall your God deliver you out of my hand? And then it says, um, for this cause Hezekiah the king and the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos prayed and cried unto heaven. Of course, that's a very mature response. It's the right response. And if you read Isaiah chapter 37, you can actually read this entire encounter in a little more, um, a little more scope as well. But Isaiah 37 verse 23 says, Whom, this is God speaking back to the king of Assyria, he says, Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? And we know what happens. Um, if you're familiar with this story, you know what happens afterwards. It says, And the Lord sent an angel which cut off the mighty men of valor and the leaders and the captains in the camp of the king of Assyria. And then this is what happened to Zennacherib after this uh, boastful pride against the Lord himself. It says, Zennacherib, he returned with shame of face onto his own land. And when he was come into the house of his God, Uh, They that came forth from his own bowels slew him there with the sword. Essentially, Zennacherib was defeated by God. Um, I think it's Isaiah 37 says that there was 185,000 of his people killed overnight by the angel of the Lord. And he went home shamed, shamed in his face. They could tell he was just ashamed, embarrassed of his own pride and what had happened. And it says he went into the house of his own God, his own false God, and there his own children killed him and took his throne. So we see the sins of Assyria kind of played out in this timeline between the repentance in the day of Jonah and here in the time of Nahum's prophecy. So we start to see a little bit of why God is angry with this people. Of course, they had polluted God's land with foreign peoples, and with that, they had brought all manner of idolatry. They had forgotten about the message of Jonah. They had uh, forgotten about the repentance of their fathers and forefathers. They had attacked Judah. They had blasphemed God. And then their pride had lifted themselves up to the place of God. 
Zephaniah chapter 2 tells us a little bit about this. It says, uh, This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly and said in her heart, I am and there is none beside me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in? Everyone that passeth by her shall hiss and wag his hand. So that explains a lot in just one verse, and it's a lot of background, but that helps us understand why God is angry with the city of Nineveh and the people of Nineveh, particularly their leadership who is directing them. Then Nahum kind of tries to confuse, confuse us a little bit here in verse 3, because the very next thing he says is, the Lord is slow to anger. And that might seem like a little bit of a... A contradiction, perhaps. Um, we've just read verse 2, and five times it's declared that the Lord is angry, and yet in verse 3 it tells us that the Lord is slow to anger. But the context helps us understand that over the last 100 years or more from the time of Jonah until this point, Assyria had an opportunity to turn to the Lord. They had the truth that their, their forefathers, that those who repented that generation uh, would have known and they also uh, had warning given to them throughout um, throughout history even as Zanacarib returns uh, should have served as a warning to them that they shouldn't mess with Israel's God and rather trust in him themselves but we see that all of these things have transpired and they're all happening because God is going to have vengeance on his adversaries, and his wrath is reserved for his enemies. Now, it says here, how is that the case if the Lord is slow to anger? And here's a question. Is it good that God is angry? Um, Holden talked about this perhaps a little bit last week as well. And one way to answer this question is it depends <laughs> It depends. If you're Nineveh, it's a bad thing that God is angry. If you're Judah, it's a good thing that God is angry. And for us, as God's children, it should bring us comfort. It should bring us Nahum, that God is angry at sin. If you're not a child of God, uh, if you're pridefully sinning, like the city of uh, Nineveh, and pitting yourself against God, then it's a very dangerous thing that God is angry. But Holden mentioned this last week, and this is really helpful, that God's anger is always good. And Holden said last week, he said, God's anger is always in conjunction with the rest of his character or his other attributes. And what bothers God or fuels his anger is always sin. And it's interesting here if we compare Jonah's anger to God's anger. So Jonah's anger in chapter 4. Jonah was angry at the fact that Nineveh repented and that God allowed them to repent in spite of uh, their sinfulness. This is what Jonah says himself in verse, uh, or chapter 4, verse 2. He says, Therefore I fled uh, before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest of the evil or the calamity that was said to take place on Nineveh at that time. And God asked the question of Jonah. He says, doest thou well to be angry? Is it good 
that you're getting mad about this? And of course, that's a rhetorical question because the answer is no. It was not good that Jonah was mad about this or the plant or the gourd that followed. God's asking the question, is it good to be angry about the repentance, the salvation of people, even if they don't deserve it in your eyes? But here we see that Jonah was angry at God's God doing a work of grace. Whereas in the book of Nahum, what we see is that God is angry at Nineveh's sin, their pride, their opposition of him, their opposition of his people. So here's the question. Isn't it a good thing that God is angry at the right things? His character obviously keeps that anger uh, within restraint. We haven't got there yet uh, in verse 7, but it tells us there, the Lord is good. Aren't you glad that God is good and angry together, that those two attributes balance themselves out? Because when he's good, he does what is right. And yet when he is angry, he is carrying out uh, the wrath and recompense that is due on sin. But Nahum continues here in his description of God, and he kind of boasts about how God is greater than all the might of Nineveh. And he actually uses some um, geographical items to describe this. He says that the Lord is great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. Another key part here, it says, the Lord hath his way in the whirlwind, in the storm, and in the clouds are the dust of his feet. That's a critical phrase because God is going to have his way. He is going to deal with sin. He is going to deal with those that oppose him. He will not acquit the wicked. And Zennacherib was one who found this out, uh, as we mentioned earlier. But what else does Nahum say about the one that will have his way? Nahum continues, verse 4, it says, He rebuketh the sea, he maketh it dry, he drieth up all the rivers, Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. Essentially what Nahum is saying of God here is, God can cause the sea to dry itself up, he can cause the rivers to dry themselves up, he can cause all the flowers of these three fertile places to wither. God is more powerful than nature. And he continues with that trend. He says, The mountains quake at him, the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down before him. This is the first of two kind of rhetorical questions that Nahum asks. Who can stand before his indignation? And the real answer is nobody can stand before the Lord's anger and the Lord's wrath. But then we see that shift in the text. That's, that sounds quite um, perhaps strong up to that point, perhaps quite focused on the, the power and the anger of the Lord. But then we see an interesting and helpful phrase here. It says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. You see, God's power and God's anger are not necessarily 
one-sided things, but they're perfectly balanced within his character. And Nahum says the Lord is good. He's a stronghold for those that trust in him. Yes, God is angry at sin. Yes, God is going to punish the city of Nineveh for their unrepentance. But for the child of God, for the children of Judah, the goodness of God was on full display here. He was protecting them who know him. They were, he was protecting those who had trusted in him, especially Hezekiah and Isaiah as they turned to him for help in the time of Zennacherib's uh, plot against them. I want to move on here to Nineveh's brokenness. Um, and this really takes up most of the rest of the chapter. And it talks about the brokenness that's going to come upon the city of Nineveh. It says in verse 8, But with an overrunning flood he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Uh, Nineveh was a city that was established on two great rivers, um, and they, their water sustained life. And it also acted as a defense mechanism for the city. Yet God mentions here that it's going to be a flood that is their downfall. And next week we'll look at this a little closer because chapter 2 is really all about how this downfall of the city is actually going to take place. And if you look at some of the historical and archaeological records of what happened to the city of Nineveh, you will see that they all line up with what is said here in Scripture. And you will see that it is a flood that breached the walls of Nineveh as they were defeated. We'll touch on that next week. But then there's another rhetorical question. Nahum asks, what do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up a second time. Essentially what Nahum is saying is what you've done to, Jude, or done to Israel, you're not going to be able to do to Judah. Then he goes on, he says, For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble, fully dry. Again, there's more prophecy here of how the city will come to ruin. The people would be drunk on the night before their attack, or the night of their attack, and the city was going to be burned. And archaeologically, both those things have been proven to be true. Then Nahum says, There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, Though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now I will break his yoke from off thee and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name will be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image, and I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Again, here a reference to the leadership of Nineveh, those that are leading their people to um, blaspheme and come against the Lord and his people. Um, and we see that that's what Zennacherib did uh, in his time, and certainly the kings that followed him followed suit. But then at the very end of this chapter, we see where God's anger and wrath that's going to be poured out on the city of Nineveh is good news for the nation of Judah. Here we see a national blessing 
on Judah. This is what God says uh, in his word. Verse 15, it says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Essentially, what Nahum is saying, and the Lord has put on Nahum's heart to say here, is, I'm bringing you good news. The yoke of Assyria is no longer going to be upon you. Their, their idols, the idolatry that they've brought upon you, it's going to be removed. It's going to be destroyed. Assyria is going to be completely cut off. They're no longer going to have power in their land. They're going to be made a desolation. And God makes this statement to Judah at the end of that. That is good news for Judah. Um, the one that's bringing good tidings upon the mountains. Judah is under the oppression of these people. And this is the message that's coming to them from Nahum and the Lord. That their enemies are going to be dealt with. They are going to be judged. God also mentions at the end of this. He says uh, in, a, in a statement to Judah. He says keep the feasts. Perform the vows. Essentially what God is saying here is don't let anyone distract you from doing what is right. Keep worshipping me. Hold on in the midst of oppression, in the midst of difficulty. Keep doing the right things. God will come to your defense. He will protect you from your enemies. And ultimately God will give you the victory as his people. It's little wonder that the Apostle Paul references uh, part of this verse in Romans chapter 10 and verse 16 uh, describing the truth of the gospel because it is good news. The feet that bring that truth are bringing good news. They're bringing great tidings that publisheth peace because God has defeated the enemies of Satan, of death, of sin through the message of the gospel and we are free to enjoy the feast that is connected to salvation and life in Christ. So I want to conclude tonight. Isn't it good news for the child of God that God is angry at the right things? Isn't it good that God expects of us, expects of us to do right and he will take care of those that oppose us doing the right things? I want to conclude just with a, a note here from Romans chapter 12. Um, this is a really helpful passage on this particular topic. Uh, verses 17 to 21. It says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but give place rather unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him a drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. It's the truth that God left with his people. He's saying, I am going to judge Nineveh. I'm going to take care of them for their sinfulness, for their disobedience. You focus on doing what's right. You focus on keeping the feasts, performing the vows that you ought to perform as Jews. Worship me, continue to worship me, and I will take care of those that oppose you. Christ, of course, or Paul tells us here, 
to do similarly, to allow the Lord to take vengeance, to take wrath on sin where necessary. Let's pray this evening. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are uh, a good God. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, your anger is a good thing for the child of God. Lord, we thank you that your wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ so that, Lord, we might never experience it if we have placed our trust in you. Lord, we also thank you that, um, Lord, you will protect your people, that you look after your people, and, um, Lord, that you have told us just to continue to do the things that we know are right, and, Lord, you will take care of the rest. Lord, we pray that you would help us Uh, to do that this week, that we would seek encouragement from the message of Nahum uh, as we go this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for watching this video of one of our recent services. It's a pleasure for us to have you join us from a distance and join our church in a time of worship around the Word of God. The most important message that we can tell you is that God loves you. And He loves you so much that He gave Jesus Christ as payment for your sins. The Bible says that all that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. We want you to know that message that true life is found in Jesus Christ and eternal life, the opportunity to live with God forever in heaven in spite of our sinfulness. True life is only found in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Would you be willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ Would you be willing to pray something like this? Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know there's nothing I can do about my sinfulness. I don't want to pay for my own sin and I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want his death on the cross to pay for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my own way and make Jesus Lord of my life. Would you be willing to pray something like that and put your faith in Jesus Christ? If so, we want to help you as you start your spiritual journey with Jesus Christ. God loves you. Our church loves you. We're glad that you could watch this message today. God bless.